when I was with the fire department, we had a call uh, on Oakley Street, not, not too far from center town, and we, we showed up, and there's a painter uh, sitting on the driveway leaning up against the house, and he's the guy we're supposed to go see. And there's a ladder lying on the driveway near him. And we said, you know, uh, why are we here? What are we doing? And he said, well, I put my ladder up and I hit that power line. And he said, but I feel fine. We said, well, <laughs> just let us take a quick look at you. So we looked at his hands and he had a black hole on each hand. And we looked at his shoes and he had a black hole through each shoe. And we said, no, you're not okay. <laughs> you got to go to the library. There's no power lines out here, so you're safe on this side of the building. When get to the thing Kent's talking about. Hey, uh, getting started, let's uh, take a look at this and we'll go from there. Yeah, maybe we're jumping over each other, guys. Let's see. Thanks. Fiona, I've got to talk to you. Go ahead. No, you know, properly talk to you, privately. No, this is a, this is a circle of truth. Whatever you have to say, you can say it in front of everybody. Okay. Um, please don't try and commit suicide again. I can't believe you just said that. That is my experience. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's not. Because Marcus is worried about you. And I'm worried about Marcus because he's worried about you. Well, so I don't not... have plans to commit suicide. You don't? Not at the moment, no. Great. Great. Whoa. Good. Well, you know, I'm not attracted to you, right? Huh? What are you on about? No, you, what are you, nuts? <laughs> All right, wrong word completely. But that's, you know, something that we should, you know, talk about a bit. This crying in the morning thing, this depression, you know, let's get that fixed. That's what men think, isn't it? What? Okay. Unless you've got the answer, unless you can say, oh, I know this bloke in the Essex Road who could fix that, then there's no point bothering. No. Well, yeah, okay, I, I would. I'd love to know the name of the bloke in the Essex Road because I've got a feeling I, I, I'd be useless, but... Oh, well, you're not useless. You're... Well, you're, you're here, and that matters. It's a great scene from a movie our family has watched. Uh, what do you say when you're facing somebody that's depressed? You know, there's a bit of trepidation, right? If I'm going to go see somebody who's down and out, depressed, despair, loneliness, loss, whatever, how do I go and, in an appropriate way, comfort them? And I love the thing about, uh, that's what guys think. Guys really do think, let's just fix that. That is what we think. It doesn't always work that way. It, you know, when he starts saying, he says, you're nuts to the gal that has attempted suicide, poor choice of words. You can have the best of motives. You can, you can go up to someone and hope that you've got words that will bring healing and health and comfort and consolation to them, and you can have exactly the opposite effect. Uh, sometimes the best thing we can do is to say nothing at all. When uh, she said, you're here and that matters. He's there. He, he's doing what he knows to do. He, he, he's showing up. And she says, no, that, that's not nothing. That, that's actually helpful. You showed up and that's something. So we're going to be talking about this morning uh, showing up. What does that look like? 
Maybe some of the do's and don'ts. Oh, wow. That was heaven toning in, I think. Okay. We're in Job. We're back in the Job series this morning. Consider Job. This is the eighth message. And we're going to be uh, introduced to Job's friends this morning. And, and their role as they're coming in is they know their friend Job has suffered these catastrophes. And so they're going to come and play the role of comforter. They're going to show up to try and be helpful to Job, and we'll see how they do. But that's their desire, just like we might have a desire to do for someone else. That's their desire. Where we pick up, Job's already lost everything, his kids, his wealth, his health, most of his servants. His wife has just told him to curse God and die, and that's when the text brings up his friends. Starting in Job 2, verses 11, that should be 13. Uh, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And notice that's why they're showing up. They want to come and give Job sympathy and comfort. When they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. They know they're looking at Job. It just doesn't look like Job. And they raised their voices and they wept. One look at their friend and they're weeping. They tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. That's our, that's our introduction to these three friends. Now, there's... There's a lot, frankly, that we don't know about his friends. In fact, we know very little. Their names and something about who they're from, what tribe they're from, or what place they're from, that's about it. On the front end, uh, these three friends are really a magnificent example of friendship on the front side of things. So they've heard about his losses, and they, they've joined together to come at a given time. They're going to show up as a trio to come and show him sympathy and to comfort him. Now the bottom's going to fall out of that in short order, but that's why they're coming to be helpful to their friend. That's what they want to do. So when they get there, they wept, they tore their robes, they threw dust on themselves, and they sat down with Job. They did the same things Job did when he had suffered those losses, same description. So they're with him in this empathy and they've left everything they had going on at home to get there. So whatever they had, business responsibilities, family, whatever, they left all that to go be with Job. And last, and to me, the most impressive thing they did was they sat silent with Job for seven days. They didn't say a word. Job is silent, and they're silent with him. Just like the video clip, at this point... They've simply communicated, we, we know and we care, and we're, we're showing you that by simply showing up, we're being here with you. There's no attempt at words of consolation or explanation at this point. They've showed up, and they're simply with him. And sometimes, that's the best thing you and I can do, isn't it? Because many times what you'll find is the person that you're sympathetic for, the person you'd like to help, you have no way of helping. And sometimes if you want an explanation for their suffering or they want an explanation, you may have no ability to give one. So sometimes there's very little to be said. And showing up and being there, even silent, 
can be the best thing you and I might do. Uh, my father died several years ago, and uh, he had renal failure, and he went off dialysis. We all knew he was going to die in short order. Uh, usually a few days, dad lasted almost two weeks, but that gave time for other children from our large family to come from across the country and show up with dad. And um, You know, renal failure is a good way to die because the poisons in your bloodstream just make you get sleepy and you get sleepier and sleepier and you fall asleep and you never wake up. That's what was happening to dad. So he was unconscious the last day of his life. He was unconscious. All his children were around him. He was sitting there in a recliner. We were singing some hymns. His respirations, you know, they're getting fewer and fewer and shallower and shallower. My oldest brother, Joe, went up to him, committed his spirit to God, and Dad took his last breath, and that was that. Now, as far as dying, I think that's about as good as it gets, right? Especially if you're a dad or a parent, and your thought of dying, my children are around me, you know, the folks that we help bring into this world, and they're with me, we're sharing this last moment together, that's a pretty good way to die. Uh, especially if you're a Christian, you're headed to heaven, right? That's a great way to die. Uh, but for the people you leave behind, there's still a significant loss, right? And it's a loss no one can do anything about. The transport company came to pick up my dad's body to take it to the funeral home. And I happen to know one of the attendants pretty well. And so when Bobby walked in, he said, Mike, I'm sorry for your loss. That's all he said. But I thought that was pretty good. So he's saying two things effectively. He's saying, you've suffered a loss, and I recognize that. There's a real loss. Your, your dad is gone. There's no more conversations. That relationship on earth is over. So there's a real loss. And he said, I'm sorry for your loss. There's sympathy. Very simple, just a few words. I'm sorry for your loss. But that actually says a lot. Can't do anything about bringing someone back. Can't make it better for you, but I'm sympathetic and I recognize there's been a loss. At this stage, that's sort of what Job's friends do. They can't do anything, but they show up. Initially, they say nothing at all. They're just with him in something that I would like to call faithful presence. They're with him intentionally to do whatever they can for him, to be sympathetic and to console or comfort him in any way that they can. So they're present with him. Now, uh, they start really well, uh, but it doesn't last long. If you've read this, you, you know where this goes. Yeah, keep calm, I'm here to help. You know you've got to be really careful when some, someone says, I'm here to help, don't you? You've got to be really careful. Yeah, so after... After that week of silence, in chapter 3, Job breaks the silence. And if you remember back when we read through that, he's complaining about his mere existence. He says, I wish I wasn't born. I, I wish I hadn't even come into existence in the womb. After he breaks that silence, then Eliphaz begins to speak. And this is what he says. And on the front end of it, it's not too bad. He said, Job uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, he says this, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you've instructed many, you've strengthened the weak hands, your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees. 
So here on the front end of his speech, Eliphaz says, Job, you've been there for others and we want to be here for you. You've strengthened the weak. You've been there for folks when they needed help. And so we're here because we want to be helpful to you. And at this point, when the words begin, we're okay. Life is good. We're here. We've been here for a week. And now, Job, we just want to do for you what you've done for others. We want to be helpful. Now, that doesn't last long. Starts well and plummets from there. And what we're going to see is they're, they're going to go in short order from, and remember where they started. This is important. They started with the desire to be sympathetic and comforting. But they're going to leave that to become accusing and condemning. And we'll look at how they get there in just a minute. They're going to say to Job two key things. They're going to say, Job, one, God punishes the wicked. And they're going to say, two, you've obviously been punished, so Job, you're wicked. That's where they're going to go in all their discussion. There's three cycles, and we're going to hop, skip, and jump through the three cycles just to get a flavor. Remember, the guys, this, this uh, cycles they have with Job, this goes from chapter 4 to chapter 31. It's most of the book of Job. There's certainly lessons for us to learn there. And this is one of the key ones today. So starting in cycle 1, Eliphaz continues in chapter 4. And he says, uh, Job, hey, remember who was innocent and perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So Eliphaz now is coming at this sideways. He says, Job, we're here to help. And then he says, and this is what I've noticed. You know, when you're innocent, things go well with you. When you're innocent, you don't suffer God's punishment. But when you plow iniquity and sow trouble, that's what you get. So he's inferring to Job nicely, Job, obviously you've been sinning. And you're reaping the rewards of your sin. He's not blatantly accusing him, but he's inferring. By the way, Job, this is what I've noticed about life. And look at your life. I wonder if that explains the other. When you get to Bildad... For whatever reason, this is the most comical of all of them for me. You know, Eliphaz starts in slowly. Small compliment and then sort of this inference. Bildad in chapter 8. You've got to remember, they're speaking to Job. You know, this guy who is in the ashes, shaved, hurting, boils covering his body. And this is what Bildad says right when he opens out of the gate. Chapter 8, verse 2. He says, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Job, you're, you're like a blustering wind. You're a windbag. You're full of hot air. And he's trading on something Job had said earlier in chapter 6. And depending on your translation, this comes out a little differently. My best take on it is this. Job says, as he's venting, he says, my words are words to the wind. That is, I'm venting and the wind will take my words away. They're really of no effect. You know, the same thing you and I would do when we're ticked or we're upset, we might come in and we're venting, right, verbally. We're, we're blowing off steam. And that's what Job was doing. But Bildad says, no, man, you're just a windbag. You're full of hot air. You know, if you're venting and someone's there listening to you, you don't want an explanation. You don't want help, right? So they start telling you, well, this, this, Mike, this is what you need to do. Or, Mike, you don't get it. This is the deal. Not that this would ever happen at our house but maybe once or twice. You know, and the, <laughs> the venting person says, I don't need help. I don't want your suggestions. 
My words are words to the wind. I'm just venting. That's what Job was doing. But, but Bildad says, oh no. You know, you're just full of hot air. You're full of yourself. You're not just words to the wind. You're a wind bag. And then he says in verse 4, he says here, if, if your children have sinned against him, God, he really means since, this is an inference again, he has delivered them, your children, into the hand of their transgression. Your children died because of their sin. You're a windbag and your children are dead because of their own sin. And then last in this first cycle, Zophar, <laughs> and again, picture the scene. You've got to picture Job, and you've got to remember what he's gone through. And Zophar says this, I'll keep this one short, Job, understand that God exacts less of you than your guilt deserves. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going up to someone who's just lost a loved one or multiple loved ones and saying, man, you got so much less than you really deserve. What is left to take from Job? He's lost everything, and this guy, now remember where they came from, we're here to help. And he says, you got much less suffering than your guilt and your wickedness deserves. How's that for friendly comfort? That's the end of cycle one. Cycle two, Eliphaz again says, Job, your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Now realize they're going back and forth with Job, right? They speak, then Job speaks. So we've looked at Job's response in the past. We're skipping over Job's comments, most of them anyway. So this is what they're saying in between those conversations when Job speaks. And he says, Eliphaz here says, you're wicked and it's the wickedness of your heart that's informing the words coming out of your mouth. You're like the crafty, evil, deceptive fellow. You're trying to be crafty and deceptive to us when everyone knows you're guilty of sin and that's why these things have happened. Uh, Bildad, again, uh, doesn't hold much back in chapter 18. He describes the wicked, and kind of like Eliphaz did initially, he describes the wicked so Job can understand. He can compare the wicked and his own life. That He can compare the wicked and what's happened to him. And so Bildad says this, the light of the wicked is put out. Uh, their life is short, or at least goodness in their life is short. He says they're, they're frightened by terrors. They're Strength is famished, their skin is consumed, and they have no children left. Does that sound like anyone you know, Job? Because that's the wicked man, says Eliphaz. Zophar says this time, the exulting of the wicked is short. This is chapter 20, verse 5 and 28. The joy of the godless, but for a moment, Job, you've had your day, and now reality's caught up with you. Now God has finally brought about what you deserved all along. He says the possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. You're going to lose all your possessions, which Job has already lost, because he's under, Bildad says, God's wrath. This is what you've earned from God. Excuse me, Zophar. And then last on the third cycle, remember where Eliphaz started. He said, Job, you've been a help to others. And now listen to what he says in his last speech. He says, is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. You've exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. You've stripped the naked. You've given no water to the weary. You've withheld bread from the hungry. 
You've sent widows away empty, the arms of the fatherless you've broken. That's why snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you. Darkness so that you cannot see. Remember, Job keeps saying, I wish I could see God, I could understand, but I feel like I'm trapped in a pit and a flood of waters covers you. You remember when we looked at Job's life, none of this is true. None of it's true. You remember that for me, one of the most poignant verses in all of Job was when Job describes his life and he said, the one that's perishing, the one that's dying gives me the benefit of his last words when he blesses me because that's what my life was like. I've taken care of all the people you say I've sinned against. My lifestyle was characterized by taking care of them. But Eliphaz, it's, these are outright accusations and lies. None of that is true. Bildad winds down by saying, you've got to love these guys. He winds down saying, uh, man can't be right before God. This is Job 25. Uh, much less Job, you, a maggot and a worm. Yeah. Zophar has no words in the third cycle, and what you'll see is Elihu, who we'll look at next time, comes in and takes that spot for several chapters. Do you remember the book started in heaven with God pointing out Job, boasting on Job, and Satan accusing him? And you remember when we looked at Mrs. Job, we said at least one of the reasons Satan didn't take her out with the children, because he could have, was because then she becomes the voice of Job's accuser, the one that's condemning Job in the courts of heaven, and now Job's friends are doing the same thing. So the words of condemnation and accusation that started with Satan in the courts of heaven were mouthed through Job's wife, and now they're mouthed through Job's friends, his friends. Remember, these were the guys that want to come and show him sympathy and comfort. So how do you get from sympathy and comfort to accusation and condemnation. What is the process? What happened? What happened to them and what might happen to you and I too? Um, I don't know if this has happened to you guys or not. You know, sometimes it's easier to be the one that's suffering uh, rather than the person who's watching it. The person that wa is watching your suffering and can't do anything about it, there's a real feeling of impotence. And you want to help, and you'd like to be able to do something, and you'd like to explain for yourself and for them at least why this is going on. And you can't. And it's frustrating. And guys, one of the hardest things for us to do in life on the earth is grappling with the big why questions. We talked about this in the introduction. You know, why this, why that? And we said, you know... Job never finds out. Job never gets a why question answered. That why question is driving his friends as well. So they've come to show sympathy and comfort, but when they get there and they see the reality of his loss, that same why question is now driving them. And this is what happens. I don't think it happens in a moment, and I don't think they're even necessarily conscious of it, but it can happen to you and I as well. They're there to be a friend and a comforter, but as they're facing the reality and they want to answer the questions why, their priority shifts from Job to themselves. They lose the motivation to be helpful to Job because now they've got that burr under their saddle and they've got to make sense 
of what's going on, just like Job did. You remember, Job was trying to figure out why has this happened. He ended up condemning God. You remember? They're trying to figure out what has happened, and they end up accusing and condemning Job for the same reason. You remember, Job's, Job's view of God was deficient, and their view of life is deficient. They, they took their template for life and God. You remember we already said what it is. God punishes the wicked. If you're punished by God, if that's what it looks like, then you're wicked. So they took that template, that's their understanding, and they put it over Job and his circumstances because it's the only thing that makes sense to them. They came with a good motivation. They feel impotent sitting there with Job. That burr is under their saddle. Why has all this happened? And their priority has shifted from Job and his comfort and his need and his suffering and his loss. The priority now is to explain to themselves and then to get Job to agree with their assessment of why these things have happened. So in their minds, it can't be any other way. Job has received this catastrophe after catastrophe because he sinned and God is punishing him. And slowly by degrees, that's what happened. Now, this can happen to you and I as well. You know, it can be really frustrating to sit with someone and try to comfort them and nothing works. And you get frustrated. And after a while, you might even get angry because you're thinking, well, they just don't want comfort. They're just being stubborn or proud or whatever. It's like, well, if you want to be there for them, though, why, why get angry? Why not ask something instead? But I think this is exactly what happened. Frustrated, they've got to answer the why question, and so they answer it in the only way they know how. Guys, we've got to be careful, again, for ourselves um, that our interaction with others really isn't about us, that it's really not all about us figuring things out, or it's, it ends up being about me. You know, sometimes when people have said, I want to help, and I've joked about this for years, my, my daughters were great, my wife is great, but when they would say, I want to help, I would hide, because what their thought of help was and my, what my thought of help was were not the same usually, right? They want to be there, but it's like, please don't help. You know, I was, uh, we had new, spent a thousand bucks to get new garage doors on our house a few years ago, and I'm upstairs and I hear this bang, and I walk out, you know, they're, they're new. It's a good thing to get a scratch on your new truck, isn't it? Because it's over, right? Well, the doors have just been installed. I go down, and the ladder on my van has just hit the brand new garage. They're not a week old. And there's a dent in the garage door now. And my daughter, God bless her, said, Dad, I was trying to help you. I was moving the van for you. It's like, thanks for the help, honey, you know. <laughs> I'll feel good if I can tell myself I've helped you. Right? I'm here for you. So look out. But that's what's going on. Uh, sorry. Um, we're going to look at Job's response in a minute, but um, when Kathy and I meet with a couple, you know, marriage isn't everything they'd like it to be. Um, one of the things we typically ask is something like this. Ask the husband, do you feel, do you feel, uh, respected or supported from your husband? Do you feel that? Or we ask the uh, wife, do you feel loved by your husband? Do you feel it? Now, sometimes couples are so at odds with each other that neither one of them is going to pretend that they're actually trying to love 
or respect the other. I mean, they're being honest and that's where they're at. But not infrequently, what they'll say is something like this. I've tried to show my wife love and this is what I've done. I've tried to show my husband respect and this is what I've done. And you know what the problem is? Their means of communicating love and respect don't speak to their spouse. So they may say, we're trying to show those qualities, but it's not coming off. And then you say, you know what would help here is asking a simple question, what would help you feel loved or what would help you feel respected? A simple question would end that. Honey, it doesn't matter when you do this, that is meaningless to me. But they're helping, they're communicating. So all you have to do is ask a question. Job's friends never ask the question. And they appear oblivious to all his responses to their critique. Listen to how he ends up commenting. Was he feeling it? I see my slide. I think I formatted this in the wrong way. Uh, listen to what he says. His friends in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, No doubt you are the people... And wisdom will die with you. Wow, guys, it's so great that you're here to help me. You're the, you're the wisdom on the earth. And when you're gone, wisdom on the earth is gone. Wow. He says in chapter 13, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that would become your wisdom. Now, that's where they started. Do you remember? Not a word. That was the high point of their consolation and sympathy to Job. They hadn't said a word. And Job reiterates here, if you'd stopped right there, we would have been fine. Once you started talking and sort of trying to get your wisdom to explain what's going on, we lost out. It all went south from there. And in 16.2, he says, miserable comforters are you all. So these friends have not only missed the mark, on just being a comfort or sympathy to Job. But beyond that, they've gone to accusing and condemning him. So the would-be comforters have become his condemners. And Job's aware of that. And so with great sarcasm, that's his response to his friends. I'm not feeling the love. Well, what does God make of the three friends? That comes up in the last chapter of Job. Just as the story is winding down, chapter 42 Verse 7, God says this. It says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, the representative of the group, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. And listen to this phrase, As my servant Job has. Now when God says that, He is saying Job is mine. Job is my servant. Job has a special relationship with me. Because he says that four times right here to Job's friends. He says, Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Uh, there's an interesting dynamic going on here. God uniquely claims Job. And we know from chapters 1 and 2 
that God had uniquely boasted in, if you will, Job in the courts of heaven. Job's my man. Job's the epitome of right living and blameless living on the earth. Job's my man. God has claimed him in a unique relationship. Now these friends showed absolutely no respect for Job, not only as a friend, but as someone who is in a special relationship with God, which should have elicited greater respect on their part toward him. So we're in a day and an age where respect is in very short order. Respect for any kind of authority. But God calls us to respect a great number and different kinds of people. So children respect their parents. Think of Jesus in the Gospels. The parents are an authority figure when they're growing up, and when they're older, they're still due respect. If I'm an employee, I owe my employer respect. As citizens of any nation, we owe those in authority, civil authority over us, respect. Same if you're in the army or any of those other things. That's also true in the book of Proverbs with the aged. We show those who are elderly in our midst respect simply for their longevity on the earth. We owe them that, God says. They owed Job a level of respect that they did not give him at all. And God rebukes them for that. As an example of this, in 2 Samuel, both chapters 1 and 4, there's two parallel stories that reflect on this. In the first one, uh, King Saul was battling the Philistines. And David knows the battle's going on. He's safely down in the south. And a guy comes to David and says, I have slain Saul, and so you're freely the king now. Now, I, I think he's lying because the story of Saul's death actually doesn't go that way in the, the story of, of his uh, battle. But he thought, I'm going to come down to David, and I'm going to tell him I killed Saul so he will reward me. And David's response is, why were you not afraid to harm God's anointed one? Right? Because Saul was king by God's doing. And David's response was to kill that guy. Later on in chapter 4, two guys come down from Israel where Saul's son Ishbosheth is ruling. And they tell David, hey, we've given you the whole kingdom because we've slain Ishbosheth. And David says the same thing. What were you thinking killing the God-appointed king, a man, he says, that was better than you? How could you fail to have given him appropriate respect? And he has them slain. There, we've lost out on this whole notion of giving respect to people God calls us to, or extra respect, if you will, because of who they are, where they're at in relation to us, or where they're at in relation to God. And that's what these friends failed utterly. Now, we know because we've already seen Job's response, God has already restored Job. He's already confronted Job there in chapter 42, and he's restored Job. But all along the way, Job was God's special servant. That had not changed. Remember, God sovereignly organized the whole thing. He's blessed Job on the front end. He blesses Job on the back end. Job was never less than God's servant and God's man. So, Look at the paradigm that you see here. So those who were accusing and condemning become supplicants to the one they condemned. 
because the one who was condemned has now been elevated as a priest and a mediator. The one who was condemned is elevated. The ones who did the condemning have to come to the one they accused and ask for his help. That sounds kind of familiar. We've got to be careful when we accuse other people, much less condemn other people, and especially when we have inadequate knowledge to really know what has happened. We're not talking this morning about things like reproving a brother in love. If your brother sins, go and reprove him. We're not talking about church discipline. We're not talking about sin situations in which we have full knowledge or enough knowledge to go and say somebody what's going on, this is what I understand, etc. This is inadequate knowledge to have any understanding about what's going on. And yet there was the leap to accuse and condemn. We've got to be so careful about that. When we condemn another person, again, think of it with inadequate knowledge. We're condemning someone that's made in the image of God just like us for whom Christ died. Christ died for the sins of the world. When we do that, accusation and condemnation to a fellow Christian, we're accusing and condemning another one of God's children bought with Christ's blood. This is absolutely inappropriate as a means of viewing life or interacting with others. We've got to be so careful about that. So we wind down, let me share an example of this. This is not at all a perfect um, comparison. It doesn't start the same way Job's story does. But listen to some of the same dynamics related to accusation and condemnation with inadequate knowledge. True story, Baltimore, September of last year. Prosecutors say a Baltimore man who was convicted of murder 13 years ago was falsely accused. Lamar Johnson, 34, was freed from prison. In 05, Johnson was convicted of the first-degree murder of Carlos Sawyer, 31, was gunned down in East Baltimore in 2004. Even after being sentenced to life, life in prison, Johnson always maintained his innocence. Five years into his prison sentence, he sees information for a group called Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project. He gets a hold of them, and they say, yeah, we'll work with you, we'll look into your case. For seven years, this group, this advocacy group, looks for information on this crime. A real murder occurred, we know that. What they find out is, the prosecution was able to get a guilty verdict, but they had no hard evidence. Everything was circumstantial. And in fact, what they found out was Mr. Johnson was first approached because the police thought he was a guy with a nickname that the murderer had, and he didn't. And the people that said he's the one, they said he looks like the one that did the murder. But basically, they found out, no, Johnson was innocent all along, and he was freed last September. Listen to what he said. First, I want to thank God for blessing me with my freedom. That's a good start. Then I want to thank my mother for always having my back and believing in my innocence. No one else believed him, right? But his mom knew him, and she knew he was innocent. And that meant the world to him while he was incarcerated. Think of the dynamics again. The guy's family that was murdered, they want justice, right? They don't want the wrong guy thrown in prison. They want the murderer to face charges. And the jury, they want to do the right thing, right? They want to give a just verdict, absolutely. 
the prosecution wants to put the bad guy in prison also. What happened? You know, everything was right except they got everything wrong. He's not the guy. He's innocent. He was always innocent. It felt to them like they were doing right. They accused and they condemned an innocent man. And that's essentially what Job's friends did to him. And he comes out saying, I'm thanking God for my freedom. And I thank my mom who never doubted that I was innocent, that I would never have done that. I love that. So guys, as we wind down, I love his smiling face. And by the way, you can see this story on YouTube. They did a lengthy interview with him. Just super, super nice guy. What kind of comforters are we? So really, we've got two issues this morning. One is what kind of comforters are we? That's one thing. But also, in our attempt to help, do we end up making it about us? Does our comfort go from that person to now our need to explain things to our satisfaction? I want to help and I'm going to make sure I've helped whether you want that help or not. Comfort or condemnation and accusation. By the way, do we, uh, do we entertain a condemning spirit? You know, sometimes, a lot of times, we're glad to condemn or accuse someone else because if we can put them down, we feel a little taller. That's just the way our carnal natures work. Are we able to lay aside our own prejudices and our needs to comfort or explain so we can, in fact, be helpful? By the way, do we ask the person that we think is in need? Do we ask them what would be helpful? That's a great question. Is there anything I can do for you? What would be helpful? They can tell you. That would be helpful or that wouldn't. Are we, like Job's friends, miserable comforters? Now, I almost feel bad for tacking this on the end, but I am anyway. Um, just like Job, Jesus was wrongfully condemned and rejected. And Job's a picture of Christ. and we're gonna, We've seen that already, but when we wind up, we'll bring those elements together more fully. And like Job, Jesus was elevated to become the priest and the mediator for those who had condemned him. That's significant. He's accused and condemned falsely. He's elevated by God. Those who accused and condemned him now come to him as their priest and mediator. Same thing that happened to Job. So, isn't it incumbent on us if we follow a Savior who was misunderstood, accused, condemned by others when innocent, isn't it incumbent on us to be very, very careful when we go to explain things away and accuse or condemn someone else? That's what, what, that's what happened with Job and his friend. Isn't it incumbent on us to be very careful when we start to make accusations and condemnation? Close with this verse from Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Guys, there's just so much we're not going to know on this earth ever. We're not going to know why things happen. We have to be able to live with that. Frankly, it's one of the hardest things we do, is having the why questions go unanswered. You know, when we get to heaven, we'll know fully as we've been known, but that's not true on the earth. We want to be very careful about what kind of comfort we offer, and we want to make, make sure that we're not taking the voice of the adversary, the accuser, the one who's against God and against those who follow God.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks for taking on yourself all our sin and our shame, all our temptations to accusation and condemnation. Thanks that you were willing to become the accused and the condemned so that those who should have been accused and condemned rightly, Lord, before your throne are set free. Help us to live with that reminder of what Christ has done for us. Help us to hold our forgiveness with such high value, Lord, that it informs the way we speak of and to others. In Jesus' name, amen.